salvation. Telling someone what they ought to do in order to be saved is a huge, huge responsibility. You know, if, if I were to rush up to you right now and say, I need you, I need you really desperately, I need you to run into this room right here, it's an operating room and I need you to perform surgery, it's brain surgery. Probably most, if not all of us would say, I'm not comfortable with that, I don't know how to do it, well what's the big deal about that, too much is at risk, do you realize that this person will not live if I do that? Do you realize the responsibility and the privilege it is to be able to sit down and to tell someone what God says about salvation? Literally, a soul is at stake. Much more important than just a physical life. We need to guard the plan of salvation. What I mean by that is we need to make sure that whatever God has said, we make sure that we never say anything more or anything less. I think about a few years ago when I had my appendix taken out. I was groggy and and it was evening when I woke up and I had just come out of surgery and my family was there and then my extended family, Mitch Poscovich, was there. and, And I opened my eyes and... Of course, Mitch has to give his, his little smart aleck remark. You know, he says, wow, David, he said, you went in at 7.45 and at 8.03, that doctor was able to go in, put you to sleep, open you up, remove the appendix, do what he needs to do there, sew you back up and have you out in 18 minutes. That's faster than you can preach a sermon. And I'm groggy and I'm told that what I said to him was, Mitch, That doctor was only trying to save a life. And I'm trying to save souls. And it takes longer to do that. (laughs) I want to ask you this morning. Do you really believe that the opportunity to sit down and look at God's Word and to share the truth of salvation is probably one of the most important things that you'll ever be a part of? As we think about this action series through Acts, I want us to note this morning a time where for just a short, short time, it's as if almost everything came to a a screeching halt to say, wait a minute, this is serious. We can't send out anybody else for the next hour or so. We've got to bring everybody in and we've got to get this straight. Because when we leave from here, we need to have the one voice. And we need to go forth with the one voice of Jesus Christ. And as the scripture was so capably read for us, and if you have your Bible, turn there again to the Acts the 15th chapter. And your Bible that's in your pew, it begins on 981. Notice again how the Jews, because of the old law and the traditions that came through, they just wanted to add one thing to the plan of salvation. That was it. They just wanted to add one thing. But notice how he says again in verse 1, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Now pause here for just a moment. When you go back to the end of the 14th chapter, what you have is the first missionary journey coming to a completion. 
As the first missionary journey comes to completion, Paul and Barnabas go into Antioch and they give a report of everything that had been done. Well, no doubt, one of the things that would gain great uh, parts of, of the conversation of the report is how many Gentiles were being brought to the Lord. This word is filtering down to Jerusalem, south to Jerusalem. And so now those in Jerusalem, they're kind of getting beside themselves. What are we going to do? Well, there's some that decide to go north and say to them these very words. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. Brethren, it's tall words whenever we look at someone and say, you can't be saved believing that. Friends, we need to be careful before we say that. We need to make sure before we say that we're saying the words of God. But then when we do say that, or when we do say, this is what God teaches in order to be saved, we need to make sure, in fact, that it is what God teaches in order to be saved. Notice again in verse 5, this, he says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believe rose up saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now they've decided to make their way from Antioch. We're going to take this discussion back to Jerusalem. And we're going to bring in the minds. Now keep in mind, the apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're going to bring themselves together and they're going to have a discussion that would end up being a matter of teaching to all the Jews that would gather around Jerusalem to hear what needs to be said on this important topic of salvation. Will it be, yes, you're correct, the Gentiles need to be circumcised, then they can be baptized in order to be saved? Or will the message be what Paul and Barnabas had been teaching all along? Will the message be what Peter told Cornelius all along? As we think about this, I'd like for you to think about the possible effect and uproar that this would have upon the, uh, the church at that time. You see, number one, we see that it was creating a huge uproar and division. And if it was not settled, there probably would be the idea in time of two churches, a Jewish or a Judaism and a Christian or a Gentile church. But then also what we would see is that this would label Paul and Barnabas as false teachers. It'd label Peter as a false teacher. Also what we see in this passage that we're about to study is that we see that it would also label God himself as being prejudiced, thinking more of the Jews than he did of the Gentiles. As we think about this, this possible effect and etc., we let's develop two things to get the setting of why this is even happening. Number one, what is the big deal about circumcision? If you will, look with me back to Genesis, the 17th chapter, and let's look at a passage out of Genesis, the 17th chapter. And of course, as you're turning back in your Bible, it's on page 15 in the Bible that's in your pew. You'll notice we're going back almost to the very beginning of the Bible. And so from the beginning of nearly the beginning of the Bible, we have this commandment. And on the screen, we have 13 and 14. I want to read for you real quickly verse 10, and then we'll read 13 and 14. We're in Genesis 17th chapter. God is making this covenant with Abraham. And remember, God made this covenant with Abraham to tell him three thoughts in this covenant, that you're going to be the father of a great nation of people. That's before he even had a son. And that he's going to be given a land. And that the blessings to all nations will come through his lineage, which will refer to Jesus Christ. But then there was going to be a sign or a token in order to make this covenant legit and also to make it a reminder, to perpetuate it from generation to generation. And so this is what the Lord says in 10 and 11. This is my covenant 
which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. You see what the Lord's saying? This is going to be a sign. And every time you have an eight-day, uh, an eight-year an eight-day-old male son, and you circumcise him, that's the reminder to your family of the covenant that God has made with you. Now, notice how, if you want to say severe, how strict, however you want to term it, notice this in 13 and 14. He who is born in your house, he who is brought with your, bought with your money, may, must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, the person shall be cut off from his people and he has broken my covenant. Do you see why this teaching coming through thousands of years was hard for the Jews to leave behind? In other words, that was always the mark of identity. Are you a part of a covenant relationship with God? Are you a part? Are you a child of Abraham? And this was a sign that had been perpetuating that covenant for generation after generation for thousands of years. And so now when individuals that were Gentiles wanted to become Christians, because keep in mind that the gospel began first with the Jews, Acts the second chapter, and it wasn't until years later that we see the Gentiles invited in Acts the 10th chapter. And so what many of the Jews were wanting to do was say, hey, first you become like us, be circumcised. We're going to to, uh, then allow you to be baptized in order to be saved. Now, again, we're, in these two points, we're discussing the setting. So we understand now the Jewish background. But what about the Gentiles? Why is this able to create such an uproar as is mentioned back in verse 1 and 2? If you will, consider with me how many Gentiles were reached by the time Acts, the 15th chapter, uh, is recorded here. You see, we have Peter on his journey back in Acts the 10th chapter. You remember in in Acts the 10th chapter how he was sent by Jesus. Remember the vision where the sheets came down and he was told to eat the unclean uh, uh, food there and he just couldn't imagine he's supposed to do that and the Lord had to tell him three times and then finally that was signifying the fact that he was going to be sent to a Gentile to Cornelius' house and of course that was so hard for Peter to, to think that it should happen but he believed God and he did it and, and so when he came to those people he did not tell them You have to be circumcised. Then you can be baptized. He saw that the Holy Spirit was poured upon them just like it was poured upon the Jews in Acts the second chapter. And he said that they could not hinder them from being baptized. Now, as you can imagine, when he made his way back to Jerusalem, now this is another setting. You see, we're studying Acts 15, a discussion about this in Jerusalem. But this already took place in Acts the 11th chapter. When he went back to Jerusalem, They began to drill him as to why he would go into a Gentile's house, why he would teach the gospel of Jesus to a Gentile. And I love his answer in verse 17. And this is Acts the 11th chapter in verse 17. If therefore God gave them the same gift, talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that gift that he's speaking of there is the miraculous measure that was poured out on the beginning with the Jews in Acts 2, and then with the beginning of the Gentiles in Acts 10. But notice this last phrase. I hope this becomes our theme verse in our mind for this sermon. Notice what he says. Who was I that I could withstand God? You see what Peter's doing here? 
He's talking to Jews that are saying, pointing their finger, Peter, shame on you. You shouldn't invite the Gentiles into the church. You should have had them circumcised first. What are you thinking? And he says, listen, I'm not going to withstand God. If God says it, I'm going with God. Well, friends, what we're going to see here in Acts the 15th chapter is Peter, Paul and Barnabas, and James, they all have that same attitude. We are going to go with God. So let's consider this as they make their journey, if you will, through discussing with those in Jerusalem. Look with me, if you will, to Acts the 15th chapter, and let's begin looking at this in verse 7. Notice, we have the apostles, of course, they're authorized to speak on behalf of God, and the first one that stands up, and and notice there's still an uproar going on in verse 7, and when there had been much dispute, the first one who stands up to speak about this matter is Peter. And notice Peter rose up and he said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us. Do you remember last Sunday morning sermon? I know that's a stretch. Sometimes I can't remember last Sunday morning sermon. But remember the whole emphasis of last Sunday morning sermon was when we looked at the sermon that he preached in Acts, the 13th chapter, about what God did. He continued to show the people this is what God did and the plea of that sermon. If we're really going to have New Testament Christianity, it has to go back to what God did in everything. We see that's what Peter's doing here. Peter's not saying, he's not using a social argument. Hey guys, it's time for us to put this prejudice aside. Let's just accept everybody. He's not using some kind of emotional argument. Hey, why don't we just love everybody? He's going back and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you why we're going to accept the Gentiles without them being circumcised. He says, do I have to remind you that back in what we have recorded in Acts 10, God, see there, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now he's going to talk about what God did in verse eight. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. You see what he's saying? First he says, listen, we're going to choose, we're going to accept them because number one, God chose them. Number two, God acknowledged it that they were saved by sending the Holy Spirit to say that they had the opportunity to be saved without mentioning anything about circumcision. And then in verse 9, he tells us something else about God and made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by God. God is not a respecter of persons. Now, he does go ahead and tell what they are doing. And it's not very pretty. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God? That would be a sobering question if an apostle were asking you that. By putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. How many of them were able to keep the old law perfectly? And so therefore, they didn't need grace. They didn't need a Savior. And now, now Peter brings up the fact, he says, so you're going to take that same yoke and you're going to place on them when you couldn't keep it yourself? In other words, what he's indirectly saying is, you and I needed Jesus Christ and His grace. You need to let the Gentiles have Jesus Christ and His grace. Now, the way he words 11 you got to really be on your toes to see how he just ever so slightly is kind of coming in the back door to say, here's how important the Gentiles are. Look at 11. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Did you notice his wording? 
You see, most Jews would have said, they are going to be saved in the same manner as us. Now, when I say most Jews, I'm saying most Jews that even believed that the Gentiles had a right to come in and be saved by grace. But do you see how he turns it around as if to say, look, brethren, whether you like it or not, they're saved. And if we're going to be saved, we're going to be saved in the same manner that they're saved. It's going to be by the grace of of God. And then after he speaks, Paul and Barnabas stand up and speak and look in verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silent. Now remember, up to this point, everything has been an uproar. And we really this morning in this sermon didn't paint the scene, but, but you can imagine a huge dissension taking place, a huge uproar. You can imagine yelling and screaming and shouting and all of these threats about what we're not going to allow happen in the church and all of this. And so Peter stands up and because he continually goes back to God and speaks with authority, now they're silent. And so once they're silent, now notice Paul stands up. And we don't have much of what Paul and Barnabas say. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So he's just making it very clear, again, what God has done. God's been working in the ministry to bring Gentiles in. And so they just tell of a lot of the miracles that God has been doing to bring the Gentiles in. And then after this, we have the half-brother of Jesus. He was a leader of the church there in Jerusalem. And he speaks, and it's James. Look at verse 13. And they had become silent. See, they're still listening. James answered and said, men and brethren, listen to me. And he calls Peter by the name Simon because the Hebrews, the Jews, would have appreciated that name more than they would have appreciated the name uh, Peter. And so he says, Simon has declared, notice, how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. They are chosen to be God's people. And with these words, he spoke of what the prophet said. And he talks about the rebuilding of David's tabernacle in verse 16. And then as, as we go up to uh, verse 17, notice how he says, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So see, first he says, look what God did through Peter. And then he says, look what God said through Amos. And he quoted Amos the ninth chapter and said how God said even in the Old Testament that the Gentiles were going to be chosen. Now you see the Gentiles are chosen. They're part of God's people. And then he says in 19, I judge that we should not trouble those who are the Gentiles who are turning to God. What a beautiful thought. We're not going to trouble people that are turning to God. Well, what are you going to do, James? He says, we're going to accept them just like God accepts them. Friends, when we consider the many, many things that have been said about salvation, it may not be a struggle to you and I today that circumcision should or shouldn't be added to salvation. You probably haven't heard that argued lately. But you know, if you go to Google and you type in the plan of salvation, every link that teaches you how to be saved on the opening pages tells you the sinner's prayer. Every link. Friends, we have a problem that is growing out of control in religion. 
Where did that come from? When we scroll through these and, and you see first, you, the, and this is just in the order of Google, we'd have chick and then the next tells the prayer that you would pray that you want the Lord to save you. The next would be Bible.org and then the next one tells the prayer that you would save, uh, say in order to be saved. And then we go to uh, a third one, uh, LifeGate. And, and then we see a prayer that can be prayed. We go to uh, another one all about God, and we see the prayer. That's just the first four. Where did this come from? Now, we only have a few minutes, so let me just put this in a nutshell. And I encourage you, if you've never done this, I encourage you to do this. You can go on, on Google and just type in the history of the sinner's prayer. Now, notice that. The history of the sinner's prayer will not take you back to the New Testament. The history of the sinner's prayer really began during the time of Reformation. Whenever a lot in religion, a lot of the prominent religions were because of a false doctrine of original sin, were teaching the baptism of infants. And so there were individuals that were studying the Bible that were saying, you know, there's not anywhere in the Bible that infants are being baptized. And so what they did was make a major break away. Now, Keep in mind, we're not studying Bible right here. We're studying the history of sinner's prayer. And so they decided to make a major break. And that major break was, we're going to baptize adults. But they took the idea that baptism was just an outward act of an inner grace and that it was not associated with salvation. And so then the question would be, when are they going to teach? Because keep in mind, it's a reformation. It's breaking away. Shortly after Martin Luther, it'd be a group that would break away after that. What are they going to teach for salvation? They taught a prayer. And so in the 18th century, that prayer became known as the mourner's bitch. And so if an individual or groups wanted to be saved, they would come down to the front sometime, even while the preacher was continued preaching, and they would begin praying. And they had to pray long and hard and their physical nature about them had to prove that they were praying long and hard. And sometime after more than an hour or two hours of prayer, then they would be deemed saved. And that's where a phrase that some of you that are older have remembered hearing, it was the idea of praying through. It was praying through. I'm going to pray through my salvation. But then, as popular, it gained its, its greatest popularity in the 19th century, but by the time the 20th century with the revivals that would have hundreds and thousands of people sometime, the idea was that takes too long. We don't have time to take several people and pray them through into salvation. And so that idea of praying salvation became known as a prayer to be saved. Not the mourner's bench. And so then individuals come forward and what is known today as the altar call. And individuals would come forward. They would sit down and, and the, the preacher or whoever's leading would go and they would pray for them, for them to be saved. And you hear it a little bit today, but any of you that, that's my age, you remember when you were young, it was real common to be listening to the radio. And there still had to be that idea of coming forward. And so... Put your hand on the radio and say this prayer. You've got to have connection. Put your hand on the television and say this prayer. But in the last 50 years, that has begun to dwindle to where now it's set where you are or pick up a pamphlet anywhere that you are and say this prayer. And now, even though that is very, very popular, and I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I'll give you my prediction 
The next movement in salvation is going to come away from the emphasis on the sinner's prayer and it's just going to be receive Jesus. And that's so vague that really nobody knows exactly what that means. This morning, I hope that you want to be saved. Receive Jesus into your life. God bless you. Is that what they were told in the book of Acts? When they ask in Acts 2, what shall we do? When the jailkeeper asked in Acts the 16th chapter, what shall I do to be saved? Were either of them told, say this prayer? Were any of them told, you can't do anything. Jesus did it for you back on the cross. Were any of them told, just invite Jesus into your heart? Friends, I beg you this morning. We must be responsible. And if we're going to talk about salvation, you make a deal with yourself and with your God that you won't ever talk about salvation without going back and teaching exactly what the book of Acts teaches about what God said about how to be saved. That's exactly what was being done in Acts the 15th chapter. The Jews were making a huge pressuring point upon the apostles. We're going to demand circumcision. We're going to drag you back down to Jerusalem and we're going to cram it down your throat. And Peter stands up and he says, no, we're not either. We're going to talk about what God did. Paul stands up and he says, we're not either. We're going to talk about what God did. James stands up and he says, no, we're not. We're going to talk about what God did. And let's make sure that we have in our desire and in our actions that we don't care at all personally for being right so that we can boast. We just want to make sure that everything that we say is exactly what God did. God gave His Son. God resurrected His Son. God gave a plan of salvation so that we could respond to His grace. God did those things. And if we want New Testament Christianity, we go back to what God did. Of course, we don't have time to talk about that plan of salvation. Recently, in our one campaign, we had a sermon where the whole sermon was about what God asked us to do. There are copies of that sermon at the information center just out of these rear doors. They're for you. If you don't know what God has asked you to do, or if this morning hearing the idea that the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible is shocking, I understand that. I really do. I know that there would be thousands and thousands of people that have just never stopped and asked that question. They're sincere. They, they want to serve God but they've just never thought about asking that question, is that from man or is that really in the Bible? It's from man. You can't take the history of it back to the Bible. Why not pick up a copy of that? Or why not talk with me or one of the elders or someone near you if you'd like to study more? Friends, I want to emphasize again, I have no desire to make a point of I'm right. But I hope all of us has a desire to leave here this morning saying, I want to obey what God did for me. And if we can help you that this morning comes, we stand as we sing.